There's an old film uh, that probably, I'm guessing, most in this room have not seen, uh, but everyone should see at some point. It's called Fiddler on the Roof. Who's seen that movie? You got some? All right, there's a, there's a good chunk in here that's seen Fiddler on the Roof, and everyone who's seen it will say, you got to see Fiddler on the Roof at some point. Well, there's this beautiful scene in the movie where the main character, and it's a musical, and I'm not going to sing the scene for you, but just know they sing it, okay? There's this beautiful scene in the movie where the main character comes home, and he looks at his wife, who he's been married to for 25 years, and he goes up to her, he says, Goldie, Goldie, that's her name, he says, do you love me? And she looks at him, and she says, do I what? He says, do you love me? And the main character, he's just whimsical. He's, he's full of this like childish passion almost. Do you love me? She says this. For 25 years, I've washed your clothes. I've cooked your meals. I cleaned your house. I've given you children. I've milked the cow. After 25 years, why talk about love right now? And the main character looks back at her. He says, ah, yes, yes, yes. But do you love me? She looks back at him. Do I love him? For 25 years, I've lived with him. I've fought him. I've served with him. 25 years, my bed is his. If that's not love, what is? And he looks at her and he says, Ah, so you do love me. She looks back and she says, I suppose I do. <laughs> you know, love is actionable, isn't it? Love is not just a term that Christians should ever throw around the way the world throws the term love around. Love is more than an emotion. Love is more than an affection. Love is definable. It's measurable. And as Christians, it's our highest ethic. You remember? It's all wrapped up in the idea of love. We are to be defined by our love for other people. As Christians, we read in John 13, 35, this amazing verse. It says, by this, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. I believe that the church has allowed the world's definition of what love is to seep into our lives, and what we've done is not just allowed to seep into our lives, but it's seeped into the church, it's seeped into our psyches, and when we think about love, this defining ethic of the Christian life, when we think about love, oftentimes what usually goes through our mind is what the world is thinking about this idea of love. But biblically, love is a recipe. God has given us all the ingredients. He's defined what it is. And can I just say this? It's way more difficult than the world would have us love people. It is an ethos that is far, far higher than any of us could possibly do on our own without the power of the Holy Spirit. Love, biblical love, costs a lot. It's constantly sacrificing and just as in the scene from The Fiddler on the Roof, it's actionable. It's not enough to say I love you if it's not backed up by a life that truly demonstrates the way Christ has demonstrated for us what love looks like. If you look at every other religion in the world, or many other religions in the world, the, the concept that we get from Christianity to love your enemies, to feed them when they're hungry, to give them drink when they're thirsty, you're not going to find that. It's Christianity that has taken the concept of love and actually put meat on it, defined it, and now it's up, up to us to actually live by it. You know, an important thing before I dig in, this passage, we've been going through Romans chapter 12, so uh, the last two weeks, and today we, we finish up this passage, verses 9 through 21, and Paul goes on this almost uh, homiletical, like a preaching run. 
It's like one short phrase after another. He's been building this theology, and now he's 30 short phrases in a row. 30. Now, I'm not going to be able to cover all 30 of these ingredients of what defines love today. No way. It's too much. But, and I want you to go home afterwards and get after that, and you look at each of the verses individually. However, what I do want you to understand is this is not how you get right with God. The, the, the idea is not, if I do this, God will love me. Before I even dig into the text, I need to make sure we remember we're in Romans 12. We've already gone Romans 1 through 11, where Paul has laid out the Christian gospel that no person can ever earn God's favor. No person can follow a recipe for their life and say, God, see, I've done all these things. Now you've got to be pleased with me. Now you've you've got to look at me and say, sure, this guy's done everything you've asked me to do. Therefore, you're pleased with me. The book of Romans has already said with total clarity total clarity. No one could ever live up to God's standard for us. All of us have fallen short and all of us are in need, absolute need of divine grace in our life. There's no forgiveness of sins without trusting in Jesus Christ. Until you've done that, this passage can mean nothing. But once you've placed your faith in Jesus and you know the gospel, what happens is this becomes a possible ethic for you to live out because God's given you the Holy Spirit. He's transformed you, and you're now not working to achieve God's favor. You've already got it. You're working from a posture of God's favor over your life. You're no longer trying to earn something. You're you're working from a place of, I've already earned everything because of what Christ has done for me. So today, Paul puts legs on what it means to love. There's kind of two breakups to this passage. Verses 9 through 13 are kind of talking about how we love each other. This group of people. Now, as you look around this room... (laughs) <laughs> you might not be able to see everyone's face, and maybe that hinders you from recognizing a few of the faces you might know because we were wearing masks, but this is your church family. That was last Sunday's message, remember? Last Sunday we talked about your church family. The first few passages, first few verses, how do we really love each other in this room and outside of this room, but each other in this room? Then the rest of the passage is going to say, what about those not here? What about those who are not followers of Christ, who are our enemies? How do we love them? So first, let's look at verses 9 through 13. In 9 through 13, we got this idea of love, and he's going to talk about how we love each other in the church. Read with me. Let love be genuine. Remember, these are short statements. Let love be genuine. Verse 9. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with a brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor to each other. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. Thirteen, by my count, phrases of what we ought to do that defines love. First one. Let's start going through these. I'm going to get through a handful of them. Let love be genuine. Now, what does that mean? First of all, the term he's using for love is the Greek word agape love. Now, if you've been around the church long enough, you've heard us talk about agape love. Throughout the book of Romans so far, the only time Paul uses the term agape love is when talking about what Jesus has done for us. That's it. It's Jesus' love for us that is that type of love. It's a godly love. It's agape love. It's what Jesus has done for us. Now, he turns it on us to the church. And he says, now based on everything I've shown you about the gospel's implications of your life, remember how Jesus loved us? Now you be like him. 
Let that type of love work through your life and let it be genuine. And then the term genuine, what does that mean? Genuine, actually, the word there is not hypocritical. Let your love be not hypocritical, anti-hypocritical. Let it have one single lane to it. This is what it means. Hypocritical love or agape love is not a show. You don't do something on the outside. A hypocrite is an actor. It's someone who's being someone, a, a, a fake person on the outside, but there's no actual depth to what's happening on the inside. Don't put on a show as a Christian. You're not trying to be a hypocrite or an actor. You're trying to love the way Christ has loved you. A famous uh, Puritan writer once said this, hypocrisy is doing the devil's work in God's clothing, right? It, it's looking out and actually doing what the devil wants you to do, which is not really love people, but doing it in a veneer that makes it look like you're a Christian. I want to say this. That single phrase unlocks this entire passage. It sounds easy. Let your love be genuine. Let agape love not be hypocritical. But if we actually pause enough to reflect on what that means, this is very difficult. And none of us are fully living up to this command. There's a great philosopher who I quote, probably too much, and I, the reason I quote him is because he really lived out the atheistic worldview. I think he's fascinating. If you want to know what atheism actually stands for, Friedrich Nietzsche is the guy you can kind of go to and try to understand atheism. And this particular philosopher, he had this thing he used to say, and I think he was right when he said this. He used to say this, he would look at the world of academia, and he would look at all the academics out there, the people who were working in academia in his time, and he'd say, he'd say they are bloodless academics. That was his phrase, bloodless academics. The idea was very simple. He said that so much of academia was filled with scholars who simply had read a whole lot of books and they knew all the information. They were very smart individuals who actually knew the writers, knew the people to read, had read it all, and they had acquired the knowledge and they were walking encyclopedias. You go around, they know it, they've got it all. But the problem was they were bloodless. They had never allowed the ideas that they were learning to actually penetrate them in a way that would change them from the inside out. They learned all these ideas of philosophy and they could banter with the greatest philosophers of the, of the world's history. And yet, their philosophy didn't actually mean anything to them. It didn't change who they were. And he called them bloodless because for an idea to work its way into your heart of hearts change you from the inside out is going to cost you something. It cannot happen without blood being spilt, metaphorically. It's painful, and each of these 30 phrases, if you allow it to change you from the inside out, will painfully work in your life. You cannot be a bloodless Christian. Nietzsche had the idea almost correct. We look to two commands next. Abhor what is evil. Now, let love be genuine means let your love be bloody. It's got to cost you something. Next we read this, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. These are two things. It seems straightforward, right? Abhor what is evil. Let's take this idea and let's sink it down and let's ask the question, is it true of me? Do I abhor what is evil and do I cling to what is good? One commentator commentating on this said it's that these two terms, abhor and cling to, are the highest degrees of hatred on the one hand and the highest degree of persevering devotion on the other hand. That is two extremes. We are to abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Now remember, all of this, this is what it means to love the way Christ loved. You want to be that kind of Christian? You've got to live this out. 
Now, abhorring what is evil. We abhor all that is opposed to God, all that is ugly, defined on what God says is ugly, and we cling to all that is good based on what God says is good. And the thing is, you cannot, you cannot do one without the other. They're two sides of the same coin. You cannot cling to what is good while at the same time not abhorring what is evil. To, to, to put up with what is evil, to kind of just entertain it, keep it you know, at a safe distance, is to actually not cling to what is good. To cling to what is good is to reject what is evil. Clinging to has this idea of a, a sailor who's lost at sea, and he's clinging for dear life to one piece of wood that's keeping him afloat. If you're going to cling to what is good, you've let go of everything else that's sinking. Now, the question becomes, how do we determine what is good and what is evil? We live in a day where the secular world, the humanistic world around us, has flipped it. Literally, quite literally, they flipped it. And if we take our cues from culture around us, literally what God defines as evil is being defined as good. And what God defines as what is good is being defined as evil. That's the mantra of the world around us. To be pro-life is to be evil in the eyes of the world around us. It's as simple as that. You want to have a cling-to thing to stand on and say, wait, I'm for the child in the womb. That's what I'm for. That is in the eyes of the world, and you don't have to look any further than last week's news cycle to see that, right? To say that is to be considered evil. To believe in your heart of hearts that God's definition of marriage between one man and one woman for life is good and holy and true and pure and it's what is right and what is good and I'm clinging to that definition and I'm abhorring what is not that definition. That is considered evil. And so I want you to hear this. To live this out takes a little bit of bloody Christianity. It takes a little bit of backbone to stand on the Word of God, look at His commands, define good based on what God says is good, abhor evil based on what God says is evil, and to stand there with conviction, and to stand there with courage and say, you know what, I'm going to go with God's Word on this one. And I know what that means for how the world will see me. We define good, we define evil based on God's Word. Now look, this is the recipe you want to love like Christ loved? You want, to, you want to love the way God's called you to love? Called you as a follower of Christ? This is the recipe. Let's get to the next two. Love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. Here's what's amazing. When you come across somebody in your regular life who does this, they always strike you as quite amazing people. I've got a handful of folks in my life who genuinely, and I can, sometimes I feel like I've got other people in my life, I can see it's almost hypocritical. They're lifting others up almost as a way to show how humble they are. And it's tough to read it, but you can do that. That's hypocritical. That's not, that's let your love be not genuine. But when you come across people who genuinely are humble enough to truly look at another person and actually think better of them than they think of themselves and actually truly lift them up and honor them, out of a position of humility, you all have been around people like that. And it strikes you as something so peculiar. Love one another with a brotherly affection. The, the language there is a family, isn't it? He's talking about how we love one another, the church, one another, that's us, one another. Love each other the way you love your brother and your sister. 
You care for your brother and sister. Look around this room. (laughs) These are the people that you should be loving that way. If they're in trouble, you show up. You cook them a meal. You're there for them. That's brotherly affection. It's very practical and measurable and definable. It's not hidden behind the scenes. There's measurement to this. They're easy words to say, much more difficult to actually ingrain into your identity. It's easy to do this once. It's much more difficult to have a lifestyle of this. This is what Christians do. It's sacrificial. Outdo one another in showing honor. Have this perspective about you that you don't desire to receive honor in yourself, but regularly you are looking to lift up another person and make sure they are getting the glory, make sure they are getting the the, the thanks, make sure they are being thanked for what they do. There was a a, a man by the name of George Saunders, and he, uh, he gave the commencement speech not that long ago at Syracuse. And in his commencement speech, he he had a really interesting commencement speech, but one of the things he said in it, and he didn't realize what he was saying, but let me read to you part of the speech. He says this, here's what I think. Each of us is born with a series of built-in confusions. I love how he he puts this. Each of us are born with a series of built-in confusions that are probably somehow Darwinian. So this is the best he can come up with for why humanity functions the way he, he sees humanity functioning. He says, number one, We believe that we're central to the universe. That is, that our personal story is the main and most interesting story. It's the only story, really. Isn't that interesting? He's looked out over all the people, and he's he's telling these college graduates how they ought to live. He says, here's the problem we have. We all think we're the center of our story. He lists out two or three other things that are so true. And then he says this. We don't really believe this to be true. We don't believe them intellectually, We know better than that intellectually, but we believe them viscerally, and we live by them, and they cause us to prioritize our own needs over the needs of others, even though what we really want in our hearts is to be less selfish, more aware of what's actually happening in the present moment, more open, and more loving. Now, he doesn't know it, but he's literally describing sin. What he chalks up to a Darwinian evolutionary accident is actually what the Bible calls sin that we have all placed ourselves at the center of the universe. And the commands in this passage, in Romans chapter 12, the commands that we read in this passage are otherworldly. Even what I've read, and I haven't even gotten to the tough ones yet. No follower, no, no human being can live out these things in any authenticity because the level of sin has worked its way so deep into the human heart that our natural default mode, if we're not working and walking in the Spirit, Our natural default mode is to keep ourselves at the center of the universe. And that's the lens by which we see everything. Saunders was right. Now look at the, I'm going to go through these quickly. Look at the rest from these first few verses. Do not be slothful in zeal. In other words, keep your spiritual disciplines sharp. Study your Bible. Pray fervently. Choose to wake up early and spend significant time with God instead of doing anything else. Spend time with the Lord. Be fervent in the Spirit. Be listening to the Holy Spirit at all times, asking, who do I need to pray for? Where are you leading me today? Listen to what he's doing. Be fervent to live out the spiritual gifts. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. How many of you need that reminder today? Be patient in tribulation. I'd say we're in a trying period. Be patient. Trust the Lord. He's working all things together for your good and for his glory. Be patient. Trust the Lord is working this out. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. These are difficult, but love is definable 
and it's measurable. Now, let's move to these next few verses. We've looked at what happens when the community loves each other the way Christ loves us. What about those outside of the church? How are we to love those who, frankly, are our enemies? Let me read the rest of this. Chapter 12, verses 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Oh, I love that one. How many of us need that word this morning? Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. We'll interpret that in just a moment. Do not, become over, do not overcome evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, as I read those passages, I see kind of two distinct themes taking place. The first theme is that of self-denial. And the second theme is that of radical otherworldliness. Just total radical otherworldliness. The first theme, self-denial. In that passage, we read a few things that just just ooze self-denial. Weep with those who weep. This is called to be emotionally present with those who are struggling and suffering. This means be present with them. Life is hard. This season is hard. Show up and sit there and weep with them. Remember, don't make the same mistake Job's friends made, where they showed up and they wept for a couple days, and then they got tired of weeping and started explaining. When Christians show up, we sit for the long haul. We love for the long haul. I want you to think for a second. Think in your life of those who are suffering right now that you, just, you even know about it. And keep in mind, the ones you don't know about, they're probably suffering as well. But think of the people in your life who you know right now are truly suffering. What's your call? What's the recipe of Christian's love? Show up. Put a mask on if you need to. And weep with them. Weep with those who weep. And you stay. And then what do you do next week? You show up. See how this costs you something? There's so many other things to be doing, isn't there? There's so many other news stories to be scrolling through, isn't there? So many other things you'd be posting on Twitter. What's the ethos for the Christian? Show up. Sit there. Love them. Weep with them. Never be wise in your own sight. See, this is self-denying, isn't it? It's actually believing in your heart of hearts. I got something to learn from everybody in this room. I have not, not gotten on top of the mountain. What do I have? I, I need to learn from everybody. See, that's the posture each person needs to have. Never be wise in your own sight. Live peaceably with all. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. I, again, I got to ask you. You're a Christian. Everyone here, for the most part, for the, most in this room are followers of Christ. You've trusted Christ. Are you known for associating with the lowly? Ask yourself that question. It's one of the recipes. It's like forgetting the chocolate chips. If you forget the chocolate chips and the cookies, it doesn't turn out right. If you forget to associate with the lowly, this thing doesn't work out the right way. This is the recipe. Ask yourself truly, are you known for this? Do others know you for this? It's very easy, by the way, to spot hypocrisy in another person. It's very difficult to spot hypocrisy in yourself. Amen? We're very, very, very good at measuring ourselves higher and better than we actually are. Myself, the worst of all, I assure you, right? Do you associate with the lowly? See, when you know you are who you are in Christ, 
You don't, you don't need to prove yourself. These are things you can do out of a posture of understanding what Christ has done for you. It begins to ooze out of you. Your life begins to change. John Calvin is a tough guy to read, I know. He's a great, one of the great reformers. Uh, and, and he wrote so much on the topic of self-denial. So much. If you read John Calvin, you come across the, the theme of self-denial and the Holy Spirit very much. You read this from Calvin. There is no end and no limit to the obstacles of the one who wants to pursue what is right and at the same time shrinks back from self-denial. It's an ancient and true observation that there is a world of vices hidden in the soul, but Christian self-denial is the remedy for them all. There is deliverance in store only for the one who gives up selfishness and whose sole aim is to please the Lord and do what is right in his sight. You want to love the way Christ has called you to love? You want, to, you want the recipe to turn out right in your life? It, it, you've got to learn self-denial. To sit with others and to assume the, the greater in them as opposed to yourself. Now the first theme was self-denial. The second theme I saw in this was radical otherworldliness. Radical otherworldliness. Did you, when you read this, did you hear glimmers of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount as you were reading through this? It's almost like he's quoting Jesus' sermon from the Sermon on the Mount a bit, from Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Consider a few of the commands. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Now let's pause for that. Let's pause for that for just a moment. Around the globe right now, Christians are being persecuted to, to greater degrees than ever in human history. We, I try to keep this in front of you so that you're aware of the situation. We live in a pretty cushy era of human history where we're not persecuted the way they are around the globe. If you don't know about this, you've got to read more of what's taking place around the world where Christians are losing their life, they're losing their freedoms every day in mass numbers. A Christian worldview is that when we are persecuted, we actually love the person who is persecuting us to whatever degree. Now, if the persecution comes in the form that many of you will experience in this life, such in, at least in near term, if it comes in the form of hatred, it comes in the form of slander, it comes in the form of misrepresentation, it comes in the form of assuming the worst rather than assuming the best, what are you to do to that person? Love them. You just keep pouring love out to them. Can I, and I want to prep you. One of my jobs is to prepare you for persecution. I suspect it's getting worse in the near term. If you're going to be a Christian that stands on this Bible and you believe the things of the word of God, and you cling to what is good and abhor what is evil, increasingly, you will be seen as evil, and you will be persecuted. The question is not, will that happen? The question is, are you prepared for it? And when it happens to you, will you love your persecutor the way the word of God commands you to love your persecutors? He goes on, he says, he says, if your enemy is hungry, then feed him. Give him water, and in so doing, you heap burning coals on their head. You know what that means? When, when you give food to a hurting enemy, what happens in, in the enemy's eyes is, is something in their conscience doesn't sit right. They don't understand what's taking place because they would hurt you if they were in their situation. They would, they would use it as a moment to put you down. But when you as a Christian flip the script and you stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ and you look at your enemy who's harmed you many times and you say, can I cook you a meal? Can you come to my house? I, I want to I I cook you a steak. What happens is that person, they don't have the category to understand that. And it opens doorways for the gospel to move forward in their life. 
I was reading stories recently about Christians in Lebanon. And in Lebanon, there's been great strife between Lebanon and Syria over the years. And, and Christians in Lebanon have been persecuted and killed by many of the people in Syria. And, and it's just been tough, right? This is a, a short version of the story. But there's been war and there's been killing. And, and people have lost loved ones. And people have been put to situations and circumstances where they have to make decisions for their children. And it's just the worst of the worst of humanity. And here are these Christians in Lebanon. And over the last number of years, Syria has been in tra- tragic civil war. And, and refugees from Syria are flooding across the border into Lebanon. And here are these Lebanese Christians looking in the eyes of the people who have been killing their own people many times and putting them in dire circumstances. And they're being forced to say they're hungry right now. They don't have a home. They have nothing. What will I do? And you know what the Lebanese Christians are doing? They're living out biblical love. And they're shaking things up and there's revival happening all over the place. They're loving their enemies. They're bringing them into their home. They're treating them as their children. They're treating them as their sons and daughters. They're, they're pouring love over them. They're buying them houses. They're giving them cars. They're getting them jobs in their companies. It's incredible. It, 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 it's, the world does not know what to do with this kind of love. And all it is, it's the basic recipe of Christianity. You put the chocolate chips in and you're going to get a chocolate chip cookie. You love your enemy, Christianity is going to grow. That's what happens. And church, you've got to understand this. This is what Christ has done for you. It begins with fully recognizing that you were an enemy of the cross. Jesus Christ has poured his love into your life. Romans tells us while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. You weren't living a life that was honoring to God. You had a life that was completely opposed to God. But God sent Jesus to die on the cross for you. He sent Jesus to take your place and bear your sins on the cross so that you would not be found guilty on your day of judgment, even though you are. But God would look at you and say, I take Jesus' payment on the cross as payment for your sin. And then I bestow on you love and righteousness and sonship and daughtership in the family of God. If you want to know God, you've got to go through Jesus Christ. And then what happens is Jesus becomes the example of Christ-like love. See, these Lebanese Christians are getting it right. And us American Christians have so much to learn. I suspect the next month is going to be a tough one. We got an election on Tuesday. And no matter which way this thing goes, it is going to be a mess. (laughs) I I can't see a non-mess way through this. I, I just can't. And here's what I want to tell you. You got the recipe for how you're to behave. It's right here. Do Christians have backbone and stand strong on what they believe? And are Christians interested in policy? You bet. (laughs) Cling to what is good. Abhor what is evil. And love your enemy. See, there is a way through this next few, this season that we're headed into. And and it's coming. It's coming. And the way through it as a Christian is to stand so principled by the power of the Holy Spirit that you know your word and you stand on what is true and you stand on what is right and you're not afraid to say what is right and you're not afraid to open the door to the very person who's been slandering you in person or online, which will happen to anyone who takes the name of Christian. And it's called basic Christianity. 
We love our enemies. We show honor to everyone around us. We seek to live peaceably with all. These are the commands of God. Church, before we meet next week, it's going to get crazy. I want to beg of you to meditate on this almost every day this week. That's my challenge to you. I want you to wake up and I want you to say, what do I do today? I read this passage and I ask, is it true of me? And then when you think about how you're behaving throughout the day, what you're following up, the conversations you're having in the office, the conversations you're having online, I want you to ask, is this conversation reflective of what God's required of me? Am I loving like this? Because if not, we're missing it and we have an opportunity before us. We have an opportunity, just like the Lebanese Christians, to show Christ-like love. Amen? Heavenly Father, we love you. We do worship you. We know that you are king of kings. We know that we have so much to learn. God, we pray over this next season. We pray for our country. We, we know, God, that uh, you are the one who is utterly in control of all things. And God, we know that uh, things are so divisive and heated right now that frankly, no matter what happens on Tuesday, it feels like it's going to be uh, a bit of a mess. And so Lord, we pray for peace. We pray for humility on all. We pray, God, for a clear and good way forward. We pray, God, that you would be exalted in us as Christians who know and love you, that, that God, we would step into messy situations with a Christ-like love, and even when people disagree with us, they would not be able to disagree with our love. That they would know they stand for Jesus, and there's an ethic about them that, that's just different. Jesus, would you please accomplish that through us? We need your Holy Spirit. We cannot do this on our own. Without you, we are utterly lost. We pray this all in Jesus' holy name. Amen.